The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, just a quick word. Uh, it's just such an honor and a joy to be here. Um, and I uh, taught here, I don't know, almost a year ago with uh, my friend and partner, Rick Mendias, uh, who's a neurologist. I'm a psychologist professionally. And we did a day-long here called The Neurology of Awakening. And uh, that was where I was introduced to to all to this place and to this um, sangha. And uh, it's just a, it's a privilege to be here. It really is. Um, just recognizing, for example, all the incredibly well-orderedness of it. Uh, it just seems so gill-like in many ways. <laughs> and, okay, well, I only knew. Uh, speaking of, of whom, uh, Gil has actually been a major influence for me, too, and um, I was reflecting maybe as a good way to introduce this subject today uh, uh, about an interview I had with him some years ago in which um, I said essentially that I was really interested in ways to embody and manifest practice in uh, household or life, you know, daily life of uh, dishes and commuting and quarreling and politics. And gee, why would I go from quarreling to politics? But anyway, <laughs> uh, and he looked and he said, well, it's a little bit like, you know, if you want to learn how to run a marathon or do anything fully or well, you have to make choices. You have to make choices. What do you put time into? What do you put effort into? And what do you not? And that was actually a seminal conversation, you know, one of those little 15-minute interviews that actually shapes and directs the course of your life. So in that context, uh, I hope today to talk about one of the kind of classic thorny subjects in Buddhism, you know, where I don't know what... Dharma teachers fear to tread, uh, not self or anatta. And it's a little bit of a link to, as well, um, the uh, day long that Rick Mendias and I will be doing here, I think in a couple of weeks, where we'll talk about the evolution and the transcendence of self from a you know, Darwinian perspective and a neurological sp- perspective as a way to turbocharge practice, as a way to inform practice or to look at this complex subject of who am I? The classic question, who are you? Who am I really? Um, To really inform the investigation of that subject through the really powerful toolbox of Western science, notably psychology and neuroscience, um, which is a great way to kind of um, uh, add to a very powerful 2,500-year-old tradition of Buddhism. So that's the workshop, and today I'm going to dive into self and not-self. So um, my plan, too, is to move through a fair amount of material and then really try to uh, reserve time uh, from about 10.30 on for discussion. Okay? Sound okay? So the point? Okay. And I really invite you, uh, when we're going through this, which can get kind of philosophical, uh, to just keep bringing it back to your own experience. Who am I? What am I? You know, what's going on really here and now? Okay. Um, and I should add, too, that there are two different ways to approach the Dharma fundamentally. You know, one is as a set of propositions about reality. 
and you look at it and you go, is that true or not true? And that's a useful way to look at it. But for the Buddha, that was the secondary. That was the secondary way to look at it. The real prize, the real cheese down the tunnel was efficacy, utilitarian. Is it useful? Does it help me? And so I really invite you to kind of orient to this material from a framework of, does this help me suffer less? And does this help me uh, bring more joy and more love and more wisdom into my own life and in the lives of other people I, I interact with? You know, ripples spreading out, who knows, to the whole wide world. Okay. So in that context, um, as you probably know, uh, anatta, or emptiness, not self, is, is one of the three characteristics of existence. The other two being um, impermanence, everything changes, and suffering due to clinging. And, but what does it really mean to not have a self? I mean, it's pretty easy, for example, to see that everything changes, and it's easy to see that sometimes we're not very happy. And that if you chase after things or struggle with them, uh, two different aspects of the craving, clinging uh, structure, uh, mechanism, process, if you do that, you suffer. That's pretty easy to see. But self, like, I'm me. Wait a second here. You know, I've been around. I have an identity. I, I heard all these things, you know, about me. I have a social security number. I exist. You know, it's me. And, um, then you also get into these kind of strange paradoxes, like who is the I that wants to undo the I to suffer less? Right? It's round and round you go. How do you function in the world as a, as, as a not-self? What's up with that? So um, this subject is, is tricky and difficult and fascinating and profound. Uh, in many ways, as you'll, you'll hear me describe in a moment, um, the... Um, the inquiry into not-self is actually the culmination of the inquiry. Uh, it's the, really the essence of the inquiry into impermanence and suffering. And so it's pretty important stuff. Okay, so on the one hand, self does exist. For example, uh, if you were to imagine driving your car or walking or to recall something or to uh, think about two plus two is four, right? Those are patterns in your mind. They exist in awareness. They are enabled and supported by patterns in the brain, a physical process. So in a momentary sense, just like a standing wave exists as it moves over a stone in a stream, self does exist. It does exist as a pattern. The question really is not whether it exists. The question is, what's the nature of that existence? What's the nature of your own self? So what happens when you look closely at your own sense of me, I, mine? One thing you see is the sense of self keeps changing. Um, I think of it a little bit like those instrument panels on a stereo, you know, that light up when the, I don't know what, when it gets louder and they go back down again. Self kind of increases, decreases, increases, decreases. And um, you can see that in much of the time there isn't actually that much sense of self. It's kind of quiescent, sort of background. Other times, it's really strongly there. Uh, it often essentially tends to organize, particularly around um, strong desire and um, strong pleasure, the grasping after pleasure, and strong aversion. Because self has an adaptive function in the brain, in the mind. It helps organisms survive, particularly very social organisms like human beings, whose survival is 
deeply embedded um, in our evolutionary history in getting along with other people, working things out. You know, uh, what's Mayor, what's his name from New York's thing? How am I doing? You know, do you like me? Uh, that's a really important thing to have going for you in a hunter-gatherer group that's struggling to stay alive, you know, in the very hostile environment of the, you know, savanna in uh, Africa. So self does have a function, and you can see it's arising and it's decreasing. So interestingly, right there, self has impermanence to it. It has a variable quality to it. You can see directly. The second thing is self has many parts. Uh, there are different attributes of the self, different personality qualities. We have different subpersonalities. The person who sets the alarm clock the night before to get up early for a run, you know, it's not the same person who goes, forget it, you know, in the morning, right? Um, <clears throat> if you've ever explored, you know, methods like voice dialogue work or gestalt work, if you've ever done the big mind process with Genpuro uh, Roshi, uh, it's very interesting to just start to experience that there's these different subpersonalities. You know, self is really like a big archipelago. It's a very distributed thing. So it's compounded, in other words. It's compounded of many parts. It's conditioned. Uh, and I should add that it's interesting, this variable quality of self and its distributed, compounded um, constructed nature is very evident in scans of the brain. And we'll talk about that in two weeks. We'll show you pictures of that. But it's really, you can, actually science can now see these things, these fundamental aspects of the nature of self in your brain, in my brain. Okay. And then last thing we observe, if we really watch self, we notice that if we cling to self, if we try to glorify self or defend self, um, take things personally, get grandiose and inflated, what have you, then we suffer. So we see the three characteristics of existence right there when we look into our own self. Okay. Um, I should add that there are two fundamental forms of clinging to self that are themes we'll be going through here. One is identification. I am, you know, that is me. It's my, you know, I am my car. I am my political opinions. Um, you know, I, I don't know what. I am whatever. I am my views. And then uh, possession. You know, claiming it as mine. Appropriation. That's mine. Okay. So, unfortunately, though, the standard view of the self does not reflect the evident uh, characteristics of it that we just saw right there. You know that it's impermanent, that it's compounded, and that it clinging to self creates suffering. In fact, people tend to think, you know, and it's deeply kind of rooted in how we regard our own self and how we generate tacitly uh, the self uh, fiction in other people, that the self is stable. It's the same today as it was yesterday or 30 years ago. It has a kind of continuity to it. Um, the second uh, fiction we create about self is that it's coherent. It's a unified whole. It's an entity. It's a thing. Okay? It has an essential-ness. And then the last is that it's important to protect, build up, glorify, work on, self-improvement. Uh, these beliefs are really tenacious, and they are not completely uprooted until the fourth and final stage of enlightenment, the Arahant. So I'd like to um, read you a, a bit of Dharma here. Um, Actually, I'll start it here. On, on one occasion, a number of elder monks were, do, were dwelling at Kosambi 
in Gositas Park. Now, on that occasion, the Venerable Kamaka was living at Jujube Tree Park. Love those names, right? <laughs> anyway, sick, afflicted, and gravely ill. And so some monks uh, essentially sent someone uh, to interview Kamaka uh, to ask him about self. And the question, um, let's see here, they said to him was, um, these five aggregates subject to clinging have been spoken of by the Blessed One, the Buddha, namely form, feeling, which is the feeling tone of experience, not emotion. It's the feeling tone being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Perception, volitional formations, which is thoughts, emotions, desires, images, and so forth, and consciousness, the five aggregates. Does the Venerable Kamaka regard anything as self or as belonging to self among these five aggregates subject to clinging? That's the question. And... His reply was, among these five aggregates subject to clinging, I do not regard anything as self or as belonging to self. And then the monks who were interviewing him essentially said, wow, you must be an arahant. You must be completely enlightened because you don't regard form, including your body, or any of the the bare sensations that move through the body, nor do you regard the feeling tone of experience, nor your thoughts or desires or anything like that, or, uh, and your own and consciousness itself. You don't regard that as self. Wow. And he then goes on to say, Friends, even though a noble disciple has abandoned the five lower fetters, still, in relation to the five aggregates subject to clinging, there could linger in him a residual or her, a residual conceit, I am, a desire, I am, an underlying tendency, I am, that has not yet been uprooted. But then, sometime later, he or she dwells contemplating rise and fall in the five aggregates subject to clinging, such as form, such as origin, such as passing away, such as feeling, such as its origin, such as its passing away, and so forth, And as he or she dwells thus contemplating the rise and fall in the five aggregates subject to clinging, the residual conceit, I am, the desire, I am, the underlying tendency, I am, that had not yet been uprooted, this comes to be uprooted. That's the final stage. And then the result of that is, where am I here? This is from another um, sutta. Happy indeed are the arhants. No craving can be found in them. Cut off is the conceit I am. Burst asunder is delusion's net. So that frames really the um, importance of working through the tenacious illusion of self. It's the, the release of that illusion, the pulling of the absolute tip of the root of the weed, the one that, if you don't get it, keeps growing back, is the hallmark of the final stage of enlightenment.
So, taken as a whole, so I'm going to talk a lot about how to do this. Okay, that's the hard part. Everyone says, you know, well, it's heavy duty, but how do you do it? That's what interests me. So that's what I really want to focus on. So um, these false beliefs about self form what's called identity view. And there are 20 kinds of identity view because uh, I don't know what. Maybe the Buddha was a bookkeeper in a former life or something. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, there's this analytical deconstructive quality uh, uh, to his approach. Um, when you get to 20, basically, because you've got five aggregates and you can have four relationships with each one or four kinds of relationships. So you get four times five is 20. In other words, the relationships are you can regard yourself as identical to form, feeling, um, perception, and so forth. You can regard yourself as possessing the aggregates, possessing form, possessing feeling, and so forth. You can regard yourself as containing feelings, perceptions, consciousness, and so forth, or regard yourself as being contained by. So if you, those right there give us all great opportunities for mindfulness. For example, if uh, we're rolling through the day and we're taking something personally or we're upset about something, anytime there's suffering, it's great to inquire, what's the element of self here? Because in that inquiry into that element of self, there, uh, it's a great doorway into how is needless suffering being constructed? You know, how am I clenching my hand in a way that hurts uh, that I can actually open out? So, identical to, possessing, containing, or contained by. Any one of those take us right into identity view. So, what do we do about this? How do we break the enchantment? It's a kind of spell, right? How do we do that? Identity view is a delusion, or to put it more neutrally, it's ignorance. And ignorance is considered to be the fundamental source of suffering, ultimately, because it's ignorance that drives the craving and clinging and and, um, selfing that uh, leads to suffering. It's kind of like ignorance weaves a spell around the aggregates, enchanting us to identifying with them and claiming them and regarding ourselves as, in some sense, their owner. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, I consider the gold standard translator of the Pali Canon from his wonderful book, In the Buddha's Words, a fantastic kind of anthology worked all together of the Dharma and only about that thick rather than the shelf that's that thick of the Pali Canon. So he says, the kind of wisdom needed to remove clinging and thus become liberated from suffering um, is precisely clear insight into the true nature of the aggregates. So he says, um, and I'm going to, Quote here from a um, sutta. But Venerable Sir, this is the Buddha being asked, Venerable Sir, how does identity view not come to be? In other words, how do we release our clinging to identity view? And he says, here, monk, which of course could be us as well, the instructed noble disciple who is a seer of the noble ones and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, in other words, someone who's 
really mature in their practice, who is a seer of superior persons and is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, does not regard form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in-self, or self as in-form. In other words, that person does not make any of the four errors of identity view. Similarly, he or she does not regard feeling as self, perception as self, volitional formations as self, and consciousness as self, etc., etc., or self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness as in-self, or self as in-consciousness. This is how, or that is how, identity view does not come to be. To go forward, then the questioner asks again, Venerable Sir, how should one know and see so that, in regard to this body with consciousness, and in regard to all external signs, the stuff around us, eye-making, mind-making, um, and the underlying tendency to conceit no longer occur within. The Buddha answers, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, present, or, fi- or present, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, one sees all form as it really is, with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And the same with feeling, perception, the formations, and consciousness itself. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. When one knows and sees thus, monk, or anyone, then in regard to this body with consciousness, And in regard to all external signs, eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to conceit no longer occur within. So it's about regarding. It's how do we regard it? How do we think of it, really? And what's wonderful here is since we're the ones who made it up, we can unmake this matter of regard of how we orient to or think about or view or believe um, you know, the five aggregates, form, feeling, and so forth. Bhikkhu Bodhi, when we recognize that the things we identify as ourself are impermanent and bound up with suffering, we realize they lack the essential marks of authentic selfhood and we thereby stop identifying with them. This reflective process that leads to insights into the nature of non-self is extremely important on the path of awakening. In fact, inquiry into the other two aspects of existence, as I said earlier, impermanence and suffering, converges on the realization that this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Bhikkhu Bodhi, this makes the insight into non-self the culmination and consummation of the contemplation of the three characteristics of existence. Dispelling identity view at the basic level that um, Kusama, did I get that right? Yes, uh, Kimaka had, is the entry into stream entry, which is the tipping into the irreversible, supposedly, I hope so, the irreversible path into enlightenment, complete liberation within, self life, within seven lifetimes. So this fundamental uh, capacity that you just, you don't believe it anymore. You get caught sometimes, but you basically don't believe it anymore that, you know, any of the aggregates are me or mine. So how do you do that? All right, let's talk about that part.
So the Buddha offered different reflections and practices for uprooting, undermining, and ultimately abandoning identity view. And I'm going to talk through um, the methods in the Dharma, and then I'm going to add 10 kind of more psychological or whatever ones that I've thought of too. So, first of all, you reflect that you cannot control the aggregates. I mean, basically, if an aggregate is yourself, you should have control over it, right? So what you do is you observe you don't have control. You know, you can't, um, you can't make things happen. For example, from the Dharma, um, this is the Buddha speaking, he says, form is non-self. For if form were self, this form would not lead to affliction. In other words, it wouldn't bug us so much. We wouldn't get headaches. We wouldn't get toothaches. Uh, we could make our body any which way we wanted. Uh, and uh, it would be possible to determine our form. Let my form be thus. Let my feeling tone be that. Right. Let my thoughts be such and such. Let me no longer sorrow over how I was raised. Let me no longer get cranky when I turn on the news. Right. But can we do that? We can't control it, generally speaking, not in the moment. We can't switch the flip. We can't flip the switch. We can tend to the causes over time, which is wonderfully hopeful of transformation. But in the moment, we can't just make our mind, our personality be something. Uh, okay. Since you cannot control it, you can't possess or own it. In other words, the contents of mind, according to Ajahn Chah, the root teacher really of Vipassana in the West in many ways, says that the contents of mind are transient, imperfect, and ownerless. It's a fundamental summary. Transient, imperfect, in other words, prone to suffering, and ownerless. Second reflection the Buddha offers. Besides, you don't have control over it, it's changing. You can't stop it. Self, by definition, has stability over time. But there's no stability to the aggregates. And the aggregates are everything. So any kind of analysis of the aggregates is absolutely sweeping. It's devastating. It goes right to the bottom line because it's all aggregates. Uh, so if the aggregates change, that means self is changing. Well, where's the coherence? Where is the stability there? Um, let's see. And again, the Buddha says the same thing. So it asks, what do you think, monks? Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. And then, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, venerable sir, not at all. Third reflection uh, in the Dharma on self is that there's a lack of a fixed it, uh, there's a lack of any fixed center. It's a deconstructive strategy. It's very postmodern. Two common metaphors given are the ox cart. Uh, you look at it, you say, oh, there's an ox cart there, right? But is there really an ox cart? Or is it more uh, you know, wheels and wood and stuff? And then with the understanding of modern physics and so forth, is it molecules? Is it atoms? Is it quarks? Is it strings? Is it quantum foam? Is it some mysterious quivering arising of the ground? What is it, right? Is there any there there? Uh, and if, it's very interesting that if you look at anything from almost any scale, 
either down to the microscopic or up to the macroscopic, the entity as an apparently separated, differentiated thing disappears. It's like if you go in really close, like 98% of the atoms in your body were not here a year ago. We are each truly standing waves. There is a stability to the pattern, even though that stability itself shimmers and quivers. But the material flowing through it, both at the material level and then obviously at the mental level, is continually changing. Um, If you pop up to the large-scale view, where are the people? (laughs) You know, they just blur out. It's like looking at um, the ocean from an airplane going over. You, You know, where are the individual waves? Really, where's the lacy foam on the top of each swell? It just whoosh, disappears at that scale. Um, I have these screensavers at home. I was just telling someone, and I'm a space nut, you know, space junkie. I love these photos. They're so profound and beautiful. And one of them is sunset on Mars. Like if I'm feeling kind of weird and cranky, there's a shot of the sun setting. It's tiny on Mars from one of those little rovers. I love those little guys zooming around there. Like, wow, (laughs) my stuff is so trivial compared to that. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, So the end of the metaphor is a banana tree. You keep unwrapping a banana tree. There's no no center to it. Um, So there are practical meditations on the parts of the body. That's commonly given. Uh, You can deconstruct the body. You know, self is a useful fiction. It's kind of a label, Sati Center for Buddhist Studies. But is there any here, here, really? It just deconstructs out. Okay. Um, Another set of practices has to do with critiquing the things that self tries to identify with. So there's a critique of attachment to views, pleasures, the body. You may have heard of the charnel ground meditations where you imagine in vivid detail your body rotting away, uh, being consumed by the maggots or being turned into ash and spread to the four winds. Those are different ways to kind of create a sort of groundlessness. Kind of you're basically taking the, the, the footing underneath the self so it has no place to land and grow. Uh, there are no nutrients for it, as it's said. Next, inhibiting self-glorification. The major set of Buddhist practices are about this. Generosity. You know, Dana, obviously, is the first teaching the Buddha normally made when he entered a, a new group of people. You know, he talked about generosity. Then he talked about virtue. Then he got into, you know, um, uh, more kind of developed uh, themes of practice, including the Four Noble Truths. But generosity is a way to open out the self. Uh, metta from Ryokan, who's a Soto Zen um, priest. Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the beings in this floating world. You know, metta is a practice of selflessness. It's a beautiful, profound practice. Renunciation. At its heart, Buddhism is a radically renunciate practice, ultimately. You know, we let go of everything. And... Uh, you know, good place to start is with me and mine. Okay. Humility, modesty, great, 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 great um, qualities of practice. Have you ever noticed that the people who are really, for me at least it's true, the people who are really mature in practice, the hallmark of them is there's less and less self there. 
there's more and more humility and simplicity and modesty about them. Even uh, people who are involved in very large undertakings, like the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, other people, um, they they have a kind of uh, modesty and humility. Tonglen practices from Tibetan Buddhism, the idea of exchanging um, the suffering of another person for oneself is again a deep practice in releasing self-importance. Frustration. It's kind of interesting. You know, the story of Marpa and Milarepa. You may recall uh, Milarepa really wanted to um, uh, develop and practice. He had a tremendous passion for it. He goes to find Marpa, who's a great teacher. Marpa says, well, build me a stone tower first. So with excruciating difficulty, Milarepa builds him a stone tower. And then Marpa says, okay, tear it down and build me another one over there. Okay? Oh, my gosh. So Milarepa does that again. Second stone tower. Marpa goes, uh-huh. Now tear it down and build me another one way over there. Right? Milarepa does that. Finally, now, he's ready for some teachings. Okay? Because he had to kind of have some frustration in his own self. So those are uh, classic Buddhist practices that any one of us can do to uh, accomplish this incredibly important thing of being relaxed and released from this monkey on our back. Me, me, me. Right? In addition to that, I want to just offer a few things that I've personally used in my own practice that have been very meaningful for me. First is to notice how much self changes. It's really interesting. Just reaching for the salt shaker. Is there much self there? Much of the time there actually isn't much self there. Okay. Notice what makes self grow. Second, notice how in the stream of your awareness, self gets added to mental contents. You'll be sitting there and um, you know, you'll see a feeling tone come through and it's, there's, no, there's no real Rick there or Mary or Joe or Bob or Susan, whatever, yet. Then there's a desire that the feeling tone triggers. Now, all this has happened in about three quarters of a second, maybe a second and a half, but you can see it go by. Um, and then the desire gets claimed as mine. That's me. And you can see self constellating around, organizing around as a kind of circuit, awakened in the brain, awakened in the mind, that grabs hold right there. And seeing that again and again and again, you start seeing the arbitrary, constructed, mechanical, jukebox, cruise missile quality to self. And you become increasingly disenchanted. The Another translation of the word disenchanted is revulsion or disgust. I prefer disenchantment, so it's Bhikkhu Bodhi, but uh, it gets that feeling to it. You're just, I don't know, I've gotten more and more bored with Rick. You know, it's just like, <laughs> it's cool, it's all right, it's, you, you know, there's a place for it, but you're like, do you ever get there? You're like, whatever. Okay, next. Um, you can regard thoughts of I as just mental formations like anything else. It's interesting to start regarding the ego as just a subpersonality like all others, without any special status. Regarding thoughts of I as, in a categorical sense, as a just another mental content. Right? They don't have any special standing. That's the that's the trick of self. Special standing, special privileges, executive privileges. I won't go political here, but you could just see what happens there. But when you step back and go, it's just yammer in the mind, you know, and it's not special yammer. 
then suddenly that becomes very freeing. Okay. Fourth, um, an inquiry practice. As you observe like a, an image, you look at the floor or you have a thought or you hear a sound, ask, is there an owner there? Right there, on that desire or that thought, even a thought of I, is there an owner there? And then answer to yourself, whatever the truth is, which, usually, which is, I think, no, there is no owner there. That's a very powerful practice a few times a day, you know, including if we're upset. That's a great opportunity to look at self because it's so florid, it's so woo, uh, there, but also because we're really motivated <laughs> to not be so upset. And a great way in there is to snip the little linkages that construct self in your mind. Okay, five. Um, notice how often you don't really need a self to operate in the world. You don't need a self to walk across the room when you get up in a few minutes. You don't need a self to reach for the salt shaker, um, in, including the executive functions of choosing and planning that we tend to particularly identify with as, that's me, that really is me, you know, because I'm the one who's choosing Chinese food versus Mexican food tonight, or, you know, this major in college, or to, to stay or to go. Um, well, staying or going, you know, Mexican or Italian is a function, certainly, in the brain. It's occurring, right? We, we have to drive. We have to decide to go left, to go right. We decide to speed up, to slow down, red light, green light. There are decision-making. There's decision-making occurring. But do we have to claim it as a self? Can it not be simply seen as a more dispersed and fluid and compounded process without somehow uh, enveloping it with this notion, that's me. Okay. Um, six, it's, the question is, of course, if I'm not living as me, what am I living from? And there we live more and more from virtue and purpose and wisdom. We give over to those po- positive, powerful, wonderful qualities and we let them make the choices. We live more and more as them, as native goodness, as innermost being. We live more as that out into the world. We live more as the Dharma. We live more as the Buddha nature within each one. We live more as an expression of a wholesome community of beings, the three jewels. We live more as that and less as, you know, John Smith, Rick Hansen, Mary Jones. Seven, notice how the field of awareness itself Simple awareness, we're mindful. Awareness, awareness which holds contents of mind streaming through. Um, Itself has no sense of self or only the barest sense of subjectivity to it. Um, Its hallmark characteristics of awareness are spaciousness so that it can hold things, Um, wakefulness, it's it's alert, it's present, it's aware, and luminosity, but not self. There's not self in the fundamental space of awareness through which contents of mind move. Eight, don't use the word self, myself, I, me, or mine any more than you need to. It's really interesting. Like in emails, I've taken on a practice of watching how much I use the word I and playing around with that. 
Um, you know, a lot of times, like in psychology, what's very interesting is how much you just presume there's a self. You see all these terms, the self-observation, self-awareness, self-identity, whatever, self-this, self-that. And you delete the word self, and the thing still means just what it means, right? So why do we add that word self to it? Um, I'm going to move to a wrap in just a minute here. Uh, another thing is to focus on really the allness, the totality that includes all the parts. And to have the view move out to kind of the everythingness of everything. Uh, if you think about it, we arise here based on the 10,000 conditions. We are dependent on them. We're dependent on the oxygen. We're dependent on our DNA. We're dependent on our parents. I would not be here today if some, whatever, I think Serbian nationalist, whatever, shot Archduke Ferdinand at the beginning of World War One. Right? I would not be here today because that led to the chain of events uh, of World War I, which then led to Germany losing and being required to pay a lot of reparations, which led to the rise of Hitler, which led to the rise of World War II, which led to my parents meeting in the U.S. Army in 1943 or something, and I'm here today. Right? Think of all those weird conditions that have led you to be here today. Or this whole world we are really a part of. That's a, that's a great... Uh, meditation that releases self. And then the last thing to wrap up here is uh, I was on retreat recently and I had a, a very strong sense of the allness of everything and that plunged me into a, a kind of despairing sense of my own triviality, my own unimportance. And, you know, you just have to really Im- allow the truth to be there. You know, wow, I'm so unimportant. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, and I was raised in a way that I wanted to be important. And, you know, oh my gosh, I'm not important. Ooh, what do I do with that? And I relaxed into it and I, I started noticing so much the natural world. I saw the squirrels and the bugs and the turkeys and spirit rock and the deer. And I noticed that I wished each one of those organisms well. The squirrel is differentiated from the tree as a relative truth and from other squirrels, that squirrel. And I wished that squirrel well. May you find nuts, you know? (laughs) Right? May you take good care of your little squirrelies, you know, your baby squirrels. May you find a mate. May it all go well for you. May you duck the owl. May you duck the owl. And yet, on the other hand, may you the owl. I wish you well. And may you find a squirrel when you need to. (laughs) It's weird. And then I realized I'm a squirrel too. I'm just like that owl, you know, the bug, the squirrel. I wish those organisms well. It's okay to wish well this particular organism too, without making it important. And, um, you know, holding those two together, to me, is a way to live in the world without this incredibly strong sense of self. So I really thank you for listening and paying so much attention to this subject. I have a few minutes for questions and comments, I think, right? Is that okay? And then for sure, and for sure we'll stop by 11. And then I will stick around, although this body, which I am not, although I am, will want to run to the bathroom first. But okay. Um, yeah. may, I, may, I just say, may I just say that anyone who needs to leave now can feel free to just get up <laughs> and we'll go on for a bit with questions. Yeah, but I'll stick to 11. We'll stop by 11. Um, personally, I, I don't. I guess I don't really relate to the question of self or not self. Um, what I, what's more, what I can understand more is trying to see things clearly 
and feel things clearly. And if I have preconceptions going into it, I'm this type of person, I'm that type of person, then I'm going to wipe out a lot of things is not even open to being, to, to noticing. And I guess, because it seems like the more I'm able to see things clearly, myself and others in the world, the more I'm able to chart a path that's going to be effective. So I don't know if, if that, re, if you can relate to that at all. Sure, I, that sounds very wholesome and good, um, and not at odds with this inquiry. I, I would just say that, um, you know, um, self can seem so abstract that it's often good to just start with basic things. You know, when we notice ourselves getting positional with somebody else, or when we notice ourselves um, kind of driving in a certain direction, I don't mean physically, I mean pushing for something, particularly that has a quality of friction to it, you know, that's a great, great place to notice um, um, self. Or when we're uh, craving some unwholesome thing, and we really want it, I really want that cupcake, I really want that third glass of wine, whatever, uh, I really want to, uh, you know, possess that thing, then uh, often you'll see self in full flower. So that's okay. Other comments or questions? Yeah. I think we're supposed to move the mic around. Right? Where's the microphone? Oh, good. A great, a great place to see self is when we take things personally or we experience narcissistic injuries. We want approval, we get disapproval. You know, it's the eight worldly wins, right? We want praise, we get criticism. I'm Carla, and um, I'm wondering, how can I be in a position of not-self and be a mother, a wife, and a leader at work building a business? Great question. So how can I be um, not-self, as it were, in, in these roles, right? First, to go back to where I framed it, you know, the full release of, of, the, of identity view is a very mature fruition in practice. And I'm certainly not all the way there. Very few people are. So it, it's important to understand that this is, a, this is one that takes practice and creating the conditions for an evolution, in a sense, uh, um, uh, for ourselves over time. That said, one way to, th- I think of these things, is there are roles. Like, I'm a father, I'm a therapist, I'm involved in a big, in a nonprofit with a lot of activities of different kinds. There are functions that are served, but how can I put it? It's the function that's happening. In other words, it's deconstructive. It's the thoughts that are occurring. It's the words that are being spoken. It's the body that's moving. But it doesn't have to be an I wrapped around all that. So that if things go not, so that if there's impermanence or it doesn't go the way. Uh, or there's difficulty, there doesn't have to be added suffering of getting attached as a, I'm attached to it. So, the, so there's love. There's uh, loving our children. Uh, does there need to be an I there to love children? Does there need to be an I there to speak intelligently at work?
One thing I've been struck by is the, the trap of replacing thought. A lot of your techniques that you describe are reflection and, and um, how to regard things and how we think about it. Yeah. And it's not effective to just replace the thought of self with the thought of not self. There's no self. In her question about um, how do you be a mother or something, you're not trying to be an, a non-self mother. You're just dropping the whole idea of of whether there's you, right? I mean, do you see? Do you see? Do you, would yeah. you agree with that? Um, Any comment and, about that? And because you're speaking to the mic, these questions are being picked up. I don't need to repeat them for the record. Okay, great. Um, yeah, and they're. I guess um, I'm just asking if you have any other. Do you have any uh, other suggestions for technique be, that are less inclined to turn into a sort of another view, a view of not self? Well, okay. So there are two parts there. Um, the first part is that you are completely right. Um, the view that I'm everything, let's say, or there's no self here can become an object of clinging and seeking and striving in the suffering. And it also sometimes can be kind of like, you know, a badge of honor in spiritual circles, in spiritual materialism circles. It's the classic one, you know, I'm so great because I'm so humble. (laughs) Right? Totally right. Right on. Exactly right. On the other hand, um, it's uh, what the Buddha taught clearly was a process of um, developing right view. It's right there, smack. It's the first one listed usually in the Noble Eightfold Path, right view. It's developing the right view, the wise view, the view that dispels ignorance. And um, the approaches in the Dharma that he generally, uh, that he often taught, uh, many of them had to do with a reflective inquiry. Uh, what I and and I think what he's saying is in harmony with what I under, I think I understand you to be saying is that in that reflective inquiry where it has a lot of oomph is when you're kind of helping the bottom to fall out beneath your feet and you don't replace that trapdoor <laughs> with a new view I am a not self right. And uh, and I think that for me, what's what works in practice is a question of degree and and tipping into and a willingness to use intermediate vehicles as skillful means with eyes wide open. You know, the metaphor of the raft is continually used um, that we do this thing to get to the other side. And for example, um, I think it's very skillful means if you've experienced narcissistic injuries growing up. I certainly did, which is to say feelings of inadequacy or not being valued or loved to that lead to a hole that you then try to keep filling in your heart. Right? I think it's completely skillful means with your eyes wide open to for a while use the raft of looking for ways to fill that hole in the heart with the felt sense of being loved, of being valued, of being prized, of being cherished, of being attuned to, all the different nuances and dimensions of um, you know healthy development, but then use those 
not like that plastic food, supposedly, they're making in Japan that tastes great but goes through and has no calories, but to actually use it so it sticks to your ribs emotionally and it fills the hole in your heart over time. And then you increasingly don't need to reach for it to pull it in. So to me, there's a place for these intermediate vehicles. You know, there's a place for the intermediate vehicle of um, taking on the view or trying on the view as a radical notion. Wow, what if there really is no self there? What if that thought is lying to me all the time? That's, that's a limited view, but it could be a good intermediate raft for you. Then the trick is to set it down, as the Buddha says, when we get to the other side of the lake or the stream. Okay. Maybe another one or so? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the Buddha offered many, many different tools, you know, for many different people. It's interesting to think of him as an historical figure. Um, he was a great yogi. He was incredibly intelligent. He was way grounded in the philosophical traditions of his time. And he was a fantastic teacher as well as enlightened. Um, and so he offered lots of means. Many of the means he offers are an analytic, uh, deconstructive, reflective inquiry. That's just in the Dharma. That's in the record. It's just fully there. Now, I think that those methods, first of all, are really suited to monks and nuns who've got a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> you know? And they're also really suited to certain kind of personalities at certain times. And so we have to recognize that. That said, he also offered lots of other methods for working with this notion of self, including some very juicy ones, which I think are really wonderful, where we are enacting anatta through love, through metta, through generosity, through renunciation, through harmony with other people rather than differentiated positionality. These are juicy, embodied, luscious practices, very rewarding. So I think for each of us in general, it's to find the one that works for us. Now, all that said, um, I think that um, the way I use these uh, markers, these are pointing out instructions. Notice the way in which you are identifying with something or notice the four things or notice what, how you're trying to possess it or claim it as a, that you're the owner of it or notice how you presume that you encompass it or notice how you assume that you're encompassed in it, right? These four things. I find them useful as kind of gentle reminders, not like some preoccupation that's going on, but, you know, as something that I reflect on from time to time. I've, if I'm really lost, I might look around like, where am I? What is up here? and discover, wait a second here, I'm feeling like I'm a small eye carried along by a big other person who's really looming large in my mind. Hmm, isn't that, in, isn't that an interesting way to identify as a self? And often when you see it like that, when you name the machine or the mechanism, the process that's going on, as soon as you name it, it's wonderful, isn't it? That often the naming alone dispels the ignorance and suddenly we're suffering markedly less. Say that. And so if you're if I'm if there are feelings, it's interesting about feelings to go, I'm 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 nervous or I'm irritated or I feel inadequate or I'm sad. Um, is there an owner there? You know, uh, is it necessary to identify with it? Is it necessary to possess it? Is it necessary to feel like it's in me? Is it necessary to feel I'm in it? These are all different 
ways to play around. It's like play. There's a play here. Absolutely the last question or comment. If we're operating from a it's on. If we're operating from a position of not self, where does the responsibility lie to identify things which are not right? Behavior which is not right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Great question. Um they're they're not inconsistent, and actually, very often it's I-ness and meanness and mindness that gets in the way of us really seeing what's wrong and what's right, including the wrongs we and harms we create ourselves. So, actually, if you look at people who most have this quality of a kind of spacious selflessness, who are they like? They're really loving, caring, and often social, very, you know, and, and ref, social justice-focused people. Thich Han, Mother Teresa, Dalai Lama, immediate examples. They have that quality to them. Um, famous story about Nelson Mandela. I'll, I'll do it incredibly quickly. Just basically when he was at Rikers Island breaking rocks for 20-plus years, his uh, deep anguish in the beginning was that he wouldn't have anyone to love. That was his great despair. He couldn't find someone to love there. So he realized he did have people to love there, the people who were guarding and torturing him. So he started loving them. And they literally, uh, after a while, the guards couldn't torture him anymore because he was just too loving, so they would replace the guards. And after he worked through a few guards, they kind of gave up. And at his inauguration, as president of South Africa in the front row was one of his last guards, who was now the head of his security detail. You know, like love. So... Um, I think that we, this is what I said at the very end, or in my, in my own suggestions, we, we identify those, those wholesomenesses, those goodnesses that we want to name and live by and as. And we let them guide us. And actually, and we let them give us courage. We let them give us heart. Because it takes courage and heart, right, to deal with what's not right in the world, to speak out, to speak truth to power, to, to raise our hand, you know, and so forth. And um, we, we let ourselves be lived by those very powerful forces of compassion and kindness and, and, and justice. And so to me, that is, um, and that itself is a great practice of releasing, um, you know, meanness, mindness. We let ourselves be given over to and, and inspired by causes greater than our own, you know, little personality. They go together, great. Well, thank you so much. Um, we better stop. This is great. Mini bows. This is just really good. I, you hung in. It's great. So thank you so much. After my quick bathroom break, I'll stick around.